0: I I realize that sometimes it's not out of callousness, it's not out of disregard, it's not out of disrespect, but sometimes I just have been doing this so long that sometimes I forget how some of the things we say are incredibly challenging for people. Um, and that, you know, I, I talked about being a shock rabbi and that's in no way is it ever my intention to be offensive. However, as I said, it is my job to, to help. I mean, you can say teach, but you have to teach yourselves a lot of things. You have to, you have to invest. You have to learn. You have to come to your mm-hmm. own conclusions. I provide a guide, um, and I, I do that with great, great, great respect, but I do show you sometimes a different way of looking at things, and that way is a Jewish way. It's a, it's a Jewish way that goes way, way, way back. And understanding Messiah in that light is, has been, for me, absolutely one of the most refreshing and important components of my entire faith walk because, honestly, there are so many questions and confusions out there by people that they just don't ask. You just, just, whatever I was told, that's what it is. And it doesn't matter if you have questions, you just don't ask those questions because that'll compromise you. That'll challenge your faith and who knows where you might walk off to. I don't believe that. I believe that God gave us the ability to reason, to ask questions, to process, to understand, to seek, to search out, to know him like Moses asked. And so, as we conclude today, I want that frame of reference in your mind. <laughs> Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. That's a psalm. We sing that song sometimes. Justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. Your arm is mighty and your hand is strong. It goes on to say in Psalm 89, mercy and truth shall go before your face. That's God. That's the description of God from the psalm. Justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. And in this culmination of our, our exploration into his name, his attributes, his divining, his defining characteristics, we've looked at these some events in, in biblical history. We've looked at the garden. We've looked at the, the missed opportunity there, missed opportunity at Sinai, missed opportunity when Yeshua came bringing the kingdom. And, and the thing is, there must be justice in the world. There must be justice. It is the foundation of God's throne and judgment. But mercy goes before him, it says. And we saw that when when Moses cried out and said, I want to know who you are. And he revealed himself as Hashem, Hashem, the God of mercy, the God of mercy. But that was also in Exodus balanced with, with justice, with judgment. And these last two weeks had us exploring Yeshua's role in the name above all names. And, you know, we settled, I, I settled, I should say, I settled and told you on the fact that he is a perfect representation of God because he said he was as the son of God. He bears his very name. His very essence is represented, his characteristics. And with Yeshua, this this truest connection to the Father, to God, mercy also goes before judgment. And that mercy was demonstrated to you at Golgotha. But there is a question that remains where is the judgment? Where is the justice? Where is the justice? Because if Yeshua represents the Father in perfection, and God is mercy and justice, but also is mercy and justice, mercy, mercy, mercy all over the story of Yeshua, right? You didn't get what you deserved, Travis. It's mercy. We know he is mercy, but have you ever heard this message? The cross is where judgment and mercy met judgment and mercy met. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful idea, and on, in a very significant way, it's true. What is the most popular New Testament scripture ever? Right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Now, that has always confused me a little bit because it does then go on to say that the Father's given the Son the right to judge everything and everyone, and he will. Have you ever considered that confusion? It's the most popular scripture in the world. God so loved the world, God so loved the world that he sent his son that everyone would be saved. And he didn't come to judge, but he really did come to judge. That's confusing. But that John scripture tells a beautiful story. No judgment, only mercy, it says. In other words, God's judgment, God's judgment ended at the cross. Mercy took over in Jesus. Grace, grace, grace. That's what the world is built on. But I need to tell you that you're missing a very, very, very significant part of a much bigger story. You really, really are. Hashem Elohim, the name above all names, a name which Messiah himself represents. If the cross for you is personal salvation, if that's the whole thing, personal salvation story, and grace from on high to save us from God's angry wrath, and get me a ticket up into the clouds and keep me out of the burning fire, that's what that means in John 3.16. you've reduced the Bible to a short snippet of the actual epic story that's going on. Justice and judgment are the foundation of your throne. The world exists on God's justice. In the beginning of this series, I told you, Judaism teaches God wanted to create the world with the strict attribute of justice. Justice, only justice shall you pursue. And very quickly, Adam Prove that that was not going to work very well. And mercy had to go before. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. And Yeshua is mercy. And he did that, but let's understand the magnitude of what he actually restored, shall we? Because it can't just be mercy. Mercy. Because there must be justice. He is going to judge the world, Damien. I know he is, but it's bigger than Yeshua is going to judge all all those who haven't said a prayer and keep them from burning in hell. That's what the gospel's been reduced to. And that misses a lot. And all of this goes way, way beyond what we talked about with ransom theory and penal substitution theory. You know, that God was angry at the world because it was unjust, unrighteous, and he was looking for somebody to take, to execute, to put blood on, to execute this judgment. And bad news, it was you. You were on death row. Justice must be meted out. But instead, he poured it all out on Jesus, who suffered and died, and now God's happy. Do you want the whole story? Would you like to have the whole story? That's a part of the story, not that. But mercy, of course. But I want to tell you the whole story of what Yeshua really did. First, mercy is obvious. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. That's mercy. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That's what mercy is. Compassion shown to one who you could hurt. That's a definition of mercy. Another to let someone suffer when you could help them is unmerciful. Particularly if they are incapable of saving themselves. That is unmerciful. And that is what Paul tells the audience in Romans that they were. For while we were still helpless, the Messiah died. That's what he says. But why were we helpless? It's because of a great injustice that exists in the world. And it's not God's fault. It's ours. Judaism says that the evil inclination or the animal instinct is in each of us. We have the desire to do good and a simultaneous desire to live base lives, to live lives that are not great. Let's call it for familiar context, flesh and spirit. You heard those terms? It's not exactly the same, but it's close enough. Your flesh is not demonic. Your body is not evil. We do not live in the world of platonic dualism, where I just can't wait to escape this wretched body and go to heaven. That's not our world. But your flesh, your animal instinct, your evil inclination is easily influenced. And do you know who does that? There is a tempter in the world. There is an adversary in the world. And so we're not completely to blame because, as you know, Adam had some help in making his bad choice, and we do too. It is true to say that Judaism sees this adversary in the world, Hasatan, that he is a tempter to our evil inclination. And here's what he entices you to do. He wants you to live more like an animal than a child of God. He wants you to pursue those fleshly passions that bring you temporary joy. There's no such thing, though, as the devil made me do it. You don't get that. You can't go there. And then once that happens, though, he accuses us before God. Why? Because he knows that God is justice. And if we fall, if we sin, if we fail, then he can easily say, look, look at him. Where is your justice, God? He can accuse. He can can help. I mean, he can harm us by his influence. And Paul says that. We are helpless. We are helpless, he says. Listen to what the Talmud says. To what is this like, the evil inclination in man? It's like a father who takes his small son, bathes him, Douses him with perfume, combs his hair, dresses him up in the finest accoutrements, feeds him, gives him drink, places a bag of money around his neck, and then goes off and puts his son at the front door of a whorehouse. What can the boy do that he not sin? Adam may have allowed temptation and sin to overpower him, but let me tell you and let me take you away from a a later established Christian theology, it's not his fault that you're sinning. You can do that just fine on your own. And Adam paints, he's, he's a picture of that battle that rages in us. But the truth is, on some level, Satan is right. If we sin, there's punishment. We know that it is death ultimately in the long run, separation, and God can hold us accountable. He must, right? God must hold you accountable. He's justice. There must be. So, regardless of Satan's tactics or his manipulations or lies or enticing the worst in us, we have a serious, serious problem. And it's not fair. It's really not fair. This great injustice. Do these good things, and yet even the way we are made puts us vulnerable to enticement by this enemy. The way that God made us, we have this internal desire to sin, and it is as if we are incapable of resisting it, that it's out of our reach. That is an injustice. That's just not fair. And remember back to our story of God's forgiveness that he extended to Israel after the golden calf at Sinai. Jewish tradition says that God said, listen, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. But you're going to struggle with this now. It's not going to be easy. It's not like you've been elevated to this great level. You've accepted the Torah. The world's going to be great. It's going to be easy. God says, no, you're going to struggle through this. He said that to Adam, too, in the garden. I gave you a great chance. You're going to struggle now. You've got to tend the earth. Eve, you have to be in pain. Where is the justice in that? Is God unjust? But Paul's great letter to the Romans in, seven, in Romans 7 says, so I find it to be a ruling principle that when I want to conduct myself in the right way, the force of wrong is near to overpower me. And that's a pretty big force of wrong. The adversary of Hasatan? pitiful, wicked creature that I am. Who will save me from the power of death working in my body? It's not fair, God. How is this justice to be, this injustice to be overcome? Well, Paul has an answer for that. Praise be to God through Yeshua, the anointed one, our Lord. What does that mean? It means you need a savior. It means you need a champion. It means you need someone to restore the scale. You need one to act in mercy to help you do what you seem helpless to do alone, you pitiful creature. You need mercy, but you need justice restored to right the wrong, to remove the advantage of the enemy, to balance the equation, to empower you to stand strong. Imagine this. Imagine if I, in all my boldness, challenge Michael Phelps to a swim meet. And I say, Michael, I'll tell you what, let's race. You you take 50 feet on me. You you get a 50-yard head start, Michael. I'm the one who needs the head start. I need the advantage. That's unfair. That's unjust. I have no chance. I have no prayer. I have no hope. Paul's answer, praise be to God through Yeshua, the anointed one, our Lord. And he says in chapter eight, right after this, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Yeshua, the anointed one. I'm reading from, by the way, you know who Brad Young is? Brad Young wrote a new version. It's called the newer Testament. He was a fantastic scholar of Judaism and rabbinic literature and everything. His new, new the newer New Testament is very good. Anyway, sorry. Reading from this, praise be to God through Yeshua, the anointed one, our Lord. And he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Yeshua, the anointed one. For the Torah rule of the spirit and life in Yeshua, the anointed one, the Torah rule of the spirit of life in Yeshua has set me free from the Torah rule of wrongdoing and death. How many people read Romans and understand everything it says very clearly? It's not exactly an easy book, but... What he's saying is, Paul, you have been granted mercy to save yourself from what you cannot save yourself from. It's mercy. In him, you are no longer that pitiful, weak, helpless, wretched, pitiful creature. You are not defenseless. You are not a victim. You are not enticeable. At least you shouldn't be enticeable. Why? Why? Because we are more than conquerors, Paul says, right? That's also in Romans. Pretty clear. We're more than conquerors. But here's what I hear a lot, what I see, what often I read and battle against, honestly the mercy card. Yeshua saved me, Baruch Hashem, thank God, and I'm totally helpless. I rely totally on him. I'm nothing but a, you know, I'm nothing but an old, wretched, horrendous, on the garbage heap kind of sinner. If not for Jesus, thank God for his mercy. That part I agree with. Thank God for his mercy. But, that's half the story. And it's actually the lesser The lesser half. It's the less powerful half. Let me say that. Because Yeshua did something phenomenal. He removed the adversary's advantage over you. He removed that. He righted a wrong in the system. He corrected an injustice. He stepped in like Moses and advocated for the people much more than Moses. He stood in the gap with his very own body and said, like Moses advocating, when God said, I mean, when Moses said to God, save them. Remember, these are your people. Yeshua hung on the cross and said, God, remember them Forgive them, they know not what they do. And in that moment, actually it was three days later, and maybe it was 50 days later, you were no longer pitiful, weak, merciless, defenseless. He did save you. Just like John 3.16 3, 16 said, He saved you from death because listen, no matter what you do here, no matter how righteous, it could never make you good enough to stand in the pure light of Hashem. You need need perfection for that. Even the furnishings in the temple needed cleansing to be able to do that. Zechariah and Elisheva were described as righteous people. John the Baptist was described as a righteous person and yet they understood we need Yeshua, we need salvation, we need Mashiach. Read Zechariah's prayer just in case. There's nothing you could do on your own to enter into God's holy presence at the end of it all, but all too often there's this missing element. And this drives me crazy. So much of what he did is for you right now. Right now. On this world, in this earth, he equipped you properly for battle. What did he give you, Doug? He gave you the armor of God. We had a camp de about that. We had our kids walking around understanding what the armor of God was. And the sword of the Spirit. You want some Holy Spirit power? Do you? Because that's what he gave, right? He gave you Holy Spirit power. What does that mean to most people? Well, man, we're not raising the dead enough. Go over here and speak in tongues and do that in the Holy Spirit. You want to really have some Holy Spirit power? Do what God and Yeshua said the Holy Spirit would do for you, which is to walk out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Provide Comfort at times, but primarily to remind you of all that Yeshua said, to tell you about and prepare you for the future and equip you for life. It's great to raise people from the dead and maybe one day we can do it in here. Who knows? But my job is to help you live this life right now and help other people live better lives right now. And that's what Yeshua gave in the second half of the equation. He restored what Satan had, ca- had taken captive. He restored this just, this, 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 this injustice, which all comes full circle back to those moments of biblical history where monumental choices are made. Every rejection of God's offer, the garden at Mount Sinai, that only gave Satan more ammunition. More ammunition, more opportunity to drive further and further from the path. That only strengthened his advantage. Adam, clearly, the more God's instructions were ignored or abandoned, the more power we gave to the enemy. And through man, made those choices. It's unfair. It's unjust. But we are out of our league on our own, and that's not God's fault. It's ours. It's not fair. We're helpless, it seems, until we weren't. Because the God of mercy and justice sent his son into the world to show mercy first and restore justice. That when the time of judgment comes, and he will indeed judge this world, the Son will judge the world. We can say we had every opportunity, every advantage. Because Yeshua prepared us to be resistors, to be more than conquerors. Reconciling John 3.16, he didn't send him in the world to judge the first time. The world was unjust. The world needed this mercy to restore the injustice. And Satan doesn't get an advantage. But please hear me say, please don't hear me say, that we now wage this war on our own. Ephesians 6, you must be strong in the Lord and in the power that comes from his supreme strength. The armor of God is our defense, the sword of the Spirit is our offense. That is the word of God. And that is the greatest irony. The story about Yeshua's mission, which is mainly derived from misunderstood teachings of Paul on the law in Romans and Galatians, was that God made a mistake. Listen to this. This is the, un- this is, this is the traditional interpretation of the injustice that Yeshua came to repair that God had given the law, it wasn't fair, and he made a mistake. So Yeshua came to fix that, to restore us to solely mercy and grace. But there's something scary that you read in Hebrews. If we deliberately go on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, No further sacrifice for sins remains, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume all adversaries. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think one deserves to be punished who has trampled on the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and insulted the spirit of grace? Mercy and grace, definitely. The justice part. He took the sin... And then he empowered you to stop doing it. Mercy and justice. Yeshua's mission, among many things, but was to fulfill the Torah. And we talked about what that means to fulfill the Torah. And the idea that Yeshua came to do away with the Torah is the exact opposite of the true story. He came to build it up, to place it within you, because that is the way in which you stand as a strong enemy against the adversary. Rabbi ben Azariah said, where there is no Torah, there is no right conduct. No right conduct. Where there is no right conduct, there is no Torah. And so we have this choice. Everything is determined by heaven, except one's fear of heaven, meaning everything in your life is predetermined by God, except your choice to be righteous or wicked, which is left to your free will. You were crippled, handicapped and living in an unfair equation. Now you're not. And it's a choice. For someone to say, I could, I, uh, I could never live by God's law. I'm helpless. I'm defensive. I've heard people say Yeshua gave the Sermon on the Mount just to show how horrendously out of reach the law really was. Just to show you how pitiful and horrible you are, that we, you could never do this. But you know what? That's stupid. And that's offensive to the work of the Messiah. It really is. That is to trample on the Son of God in my mind. Why would he give us an instruction we could never carry out? That is unjust. That is unfair. That's what he came to do. And Shavuot, the giving of the Holy Spirit, that was about justice. Because in the end, there must be judgment. That is what the Bible says. He did not come to judge the earth. You're right. The first time he came to show mercy and to restore justice, that you would not be some pitiful, sniveling, whining little baby in the world and that you would take up the armor of God that he paid for for you so that you would live a life worthy of the Son of God. That you would allow the Torah to be written on your heart that would not to make you an Orthodox Jew or celebrate Shabbat better but that you would love God and love others, which you seemed incapable of doing before Yeshua came, and he fixed it. And so, no, you don't have to go burn in hell. That's not where you're, that's not where you're headed. He fixed that. So we rejoice in mercy, right? But you must equivalently, re, equally re, rejoice in the fact that Yeshua is mercy and justice, and in the end, He is judgment, right? So maybe not the first time, but the second time He is. And because of the choice you make to allow Him to work within you, to allow God to work within you, we are full partakers equally. Of mercy and justice he must be and in the beginning God desired to build this world firmly rooted in justice and in the end it will be again just like the garden and that's where Yeshua is taking all those who have professed faith in him Shabbat Shalom.